Welcome to the Scuff Podcast, where we talk about U.S. soccer. Our guest today is someone you've heard on TV almost certainly, but may not fully appreciate his role in American soccer. He's a 1965 U.S. Open Cup champion, National Soccer Hall of Famer, a pioneer of player, coach, and referee development in the game in this country, an assistant coach for the men's national team that played at the 1990 World Cup, and now a commentator for Fox Sports. He is Joe Matchnik. Welcome to the Scuff Podcast, Dr. Joe. Thank, thank you, Adam. Thank you. Really appreciate this opportunity. It's one I don't get that often, um, and I appreciate being able to talk about soccer with folks that are really interested in the game. Also, I should mention you're about to celebrate a big birthday, right? Uh, let me think. Friday, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, be uh, 80. Can't believe it. Happy birthday. Thank That's you. a big one. Yeah. So um, let's start way back. You first made your name in American soccer in the 70s as a goalkeeper trainer. When did you begin focusing on goalkeeper training and how would you describe uh, what goalkeeper training was like at the time? And what you were, how, how was what you were doing different from what was already available? Well, it, it actually goes back before the 70s. Um, I was okay. a um, player, goalkeeper at Long Island University uh, in Brooklyn, New York. Myself and Ray Klaveka, who later went on to be the coach of the Cosmos, um, were the first two so-called scholarships, athletic scholarships for soccer uh, at that school. And um, so uh, we turned around a program um, that didn't win a game in two years. Um, The first season that we were able to play, back then freshmen couldn't play in the NCAA. Uh, You had to sit out a year, make sure you were eligible and all of that. So we turned that program around. The first year we were five and five, then a little bit the next year, probably 10 and something. And then the third year we actually made the NCAA tournament. Um, And then during that time at LIU, I became, after I graduated, I became graduate assistant coach and started really focusing on goalkeepers. Um, And there were a few soccer camps developing in the country at that time. One of them was run by Walter Chisowitz, who later became national team coach. And uh, I would go up to his uh, uh, camp and work out their goalkeepers who pretty much when I wasn't there were being just used for shooting practice for the other players. Um, And then so I got the idea a couple years after that to start a camp just for goalkeepers. And everybody made fun. Like, what are you going to do? There's for a whole week, there's not that much to learn, you know? And uh, I guess we, uh, we proved them wrong. So in 77, uh, I started the, what was called number one goalkeepers camp. And uh, the first year we had 39 goalkeepers from 13 states. Uh, we did that in Connecticut at the Taft School. And then uh, we must have done a pretty good job because the next summer we had over 200 goalkeepers from 39 states. Wow. And by year three, we we then put a camp in Chicago and then in L.A. and Dallas. 
And at the height, uh, we probably had 20, 21 camps across the country just for goalkeepers. So it became the place to go. Um, everyone was sending their goalkeepers because we were doing things that nobody else was doing. And uh, I had a little bit of teaching skill. I you know, grew up in New York City and the high school I went to was Brooklyn Tech. Um, and in the gym class, uh, we had 200 students at a time in the gym class. So I was able to look at teachers and see how they manage a group and can do you know, a single lesson and then break it up into small groups. And so I developed a methodology uh, that worked with the goalkeepers and it, uh, it was extremely successful. Um, we were producing, I mean, we were producing the top goalkeepers from major colleges. And at one time we had five starting goalkeepers in MLS, uh, all graduates from the camp. Yeah. Uh, and names that you'll know, John Bush, uh, Matt Reese, uh, Nick Romando, um, Kevin Hartman, uh, Joe Cannon, you know, and that's not to mention Dave Anoli, who was by that time uh, coaching uh, for, you know, New England Revolution. He's former national team goalkeeper. We had Tim Harris, the Olympic goalkeeper. We had them all. So, so it was uh, quite the thing. Yeah. Did you, I mean, wasn't Tony Miola at that camp at, at some point? Tony, Tony is an interesting story. So, so uh, he was never a camper. Okay. Okay. Um, so we're now, we're now like 1988, the beginning of my association with the national team. And uh, <clears throat> we had uh, the goal, we had three goalkeepers back then. Dave Vinoli, who I mentioned. Um, Jeff Duback, who was the goalkeeper at Yale, and Jim Tejans, who was the goalkeeper at St. Louis University. Those were the three national team goalkeepers. Um, after we got out of the first qualification group, which was against Jamaica, we had home and a home against Jamaica. Then we got into the real qualification group for 1990 World Cup. Um, and, and pretty much we were carrying two goalkeepers then, Vinoli and Dubak. And so we started qualification and our first game was away at Costa Rica. And this would be early 89. And uh, Dubak was the starter. And we lost the game 1-0, not, nothing. He was not to be blamed on the goal, but we, we were a little bit flat. Um, and, and Dave Anoli had this really huge personality. If you remember or see pictures of him, he had American flags up his sleeve. He planted American flags in the goal. Um, you know, he, he was uh, very vocal. The players loved playing for him, um, and he was great in the locker room. So we decided to give him the start in our second game, which was also against Costa Rica but this was played at St. Louis Soccer Park. Back then, <clears throat> if we got 3,500 people to a national team game, that was considered to be pretty good. Wow. So we, we, we managed to win that game, I believe 1-0. I think Tao Ramos scored the goal, uh, and Vinoli saved a penalty kick in the dying moments. Wow. So Vinoli was, became our goalkeeper. And uh, then 
you know, during this whole time, there was a thing called the Marlboro Cup. And so we played in so many Marlboro Cups, Miami, Los Angeles. So there was a particular Marlboro Cup in what was then called Giant Stadium in New York City, not New Jersey. Um, and Vinoli and Dubak were with us. Vinoli came to Camp Hurt, so he couldn't start. Dubak um, uh, was then scheduled to start, but we had no backup. So the, <laughs> Tony Mayola was living like down the street, you know, in, Car in Kearney. And, and his, his friends, uh, Harks and Ramos and those, and those kids from New Jersey, said, well, we need a backup call Tony. So he was like, you know, right there. So we brought him in to, uh, um, to practice. And, you know, and they said, okay, you're going to dress. You're going to be the backup. But then Dubak gets hurt in the first game. So Tony has to come in. He plays outstanding. The second game is against Peru. We shut out Peru 3-0. And then Miola becomes the goalkeeper. So, and then he's, you know, starts all the remaining games for the national team and uh, finishes with four straight shutouts. People forget that, you know, and two of them were 0-0 ties. So that if he, if he doesn't make a shutout, you know, I mean, we're, we don't, we don't qualify for that World Cup. Everybody remembers Trinidad and Paul Caligiuri's goal and that big game. But, you know, it was the Dave Vinoli's penalty kick in the, in the second game, which saved three points, and Miola's four shutouts, which saved points uh, that, that made the Trinidad game even possible. Um, and, of course, we went down to Trinidad. Uh, Miola played well again. We got the shutout. Caligiuri scored the magic goal, and we qualified for the World Cup, and, Vinoli, and, and Miola uh, was our goalkeeper moving forward. When uh, you guys went down the street and rousted him from his home in Kearney, New Jersey, what was what did Miola have to work on back then as a goalkeeper? Like what were not, his uh, weaknesses? Nothing, nothing. He was a fabulous athlete. You know, he played baseball also. Uh, and for his high school, he was a field player because he, he, his best friend uh, was also a goalkeeper. So he he kind of forfeited the goalkeeper position and said, you play goal, I'll play on the field. I mean, he had a left foot, he had a right foot, he was big, he was strong, he, was, he had footwork. He had, he had everything that a goalkeeper of that time, um, you know, he had all the tools. Okay. Well, you know, we, on our podcast, we've done some recaps of historic national team games. Uh, and we did, uh, we did recap the... Um, the 1990 loss to Czechoslovakia, the 5-1 loss, which I assume you were on the, you were on the sideline that, for that oh, game, right? Yeah. Yes, I was, of course. Okay. Yeah. So um, I wonder, you know, going into that game, what, did, what was the sort of feeling in the group? Was it, hey, we're, we're, um, we have a chance to win this, like we, we can win this, or was it like let's just go out and put in a respectable performance? Because, because obviously the team did against Italy in the next game. What was the mood? Well, it, it was more than just a mood. Um, so we were in a group, as you know, uh, with Czechoslovakia, our first game, Italy, the second game, Austria, the, thir uh, Austria, the third game. So um, 
Walter Chisowitz, who was still working uh, for U.S. Soccer at the time as technical director, and Bob Gensler, head coach. Uh, you know, back then it was difficult to scout uh, teams. In fact, <clears throat> we had to, there was a, uh, a journalist in Hartford, Connecticut that worked for the Hartford newspaper that had a giant, um, what do you call it, uh, satellite a dish, giant satellite dish in his yard. And he was the one that we would go to to get tapes, VHS tapes of various games. Um, his name was uh, uh, Jerry Trecker. He's the brother of Jim Trecker that is uh, still very much uh, uh, involved in the Hall of Fame. Um, so we had tapes of the various uh, uh, teams that we were going to play. We thought that we had a shot to get points against Czechoslovakia because um, they, they, number one, they, I believe they qualified in their very last game, but in their preparation games leading to the World Cup, in their practice games, they hadn't won a game and there was reports of disharmony uh, in the team because some of the players had already managed to escape over the Iron Curtain and were playing with Italy, in Italy, making huge money. And, and there was uh, dissension with those players that were still in Czechoslovakia, blah, blah, blah. I found out all of this later uh, when um, after the World Cup, all of the coaches were asked to come back to Corbacciano, the Italian national team training camp, and for seminars. And I was assigned the topic, uh, you know, what did we learn in our first World Cup after 40 years? Bob couldn't go because he was still with the team and that team was um, playing somewhere else in Europe. So I, I did that and I approached the Czechoslovakian coach and actually asked him this question. And he said, yeah. He said, we were a mess um, as a team. And, and um, we, you know, and, but when we got to Italy, we were able to put it together and, and uh, you know, played some really, really good games. So we were, we were fooled, I guess, uh, in the preparation. Um, you know, we thought we could get a point maybe, you know. Mm -hmm. We didn't think we would get a point in, against Italy and Rome, you know, uh, and the host country. And Austria, if the records are can be checked, Austria had won all their preseason, all their pre-cup training games, even beating Netherlands in Netherlands, which was a which was a, a huge win. Right. So we, we thought we thought you know if if there was a chance to get points, it would be against Czechoslovakia, and we played an open game uh, against them, and we got hammered uh, five to one. Uh, one of the goals was a penalty. There was a second penalty. Uh, which Tony saved, um, and, and uh, it was, you know, embarrassing, you know, to say the least. They were good. I mean, at least watching the tape. They yeah, were no, well, and they went on to do very well in that World Cup. Yeah. Um, and I will say this, uh, too, that, you know, playing in CONCACAF as, as we did and do, you know, we were, even at that time, bigger, stronger, faster, um, you know, there are many of the athletes um, from Guatemala and Costa Rica and Honduras and uh, those countries when we came up against Czechoslovakia, even lining up in the tunnel, looking at them. I mean, their legs were like, you know, I mean, these were these were real soccer players 
uh, their, their, I don't want to say, I mean, their butts were like, their, you know, I mean, you couldn't knock them off the ball. The center right. of gravity was so good. Uh, and some of them were, you know, some of them became the stars. Uh, uh, Novak uh, came later to MLS and played with Chicago. And um, that big number nine ended up in Ravi. Ravi was fabulous. Yeah. And, yeah. So they, and they also, you know, playing in CONCACAF, we we weren't used to that level of long-range shooting. Um, and so, I mean, these these guys can hit the ball 25, 30, 35 yards, crosses more accurately than we were used to dealing with. So so we it was a, an eye-opening experience. Sure. Now, going back a little bit, you coached hockey as well as soccer at one point in your career, yeah. right? Yeah. Back then in the 60s, you know, there were very few full-time soccer coaches. If you wanted to be a soccer coach in college, you had to do something else as well. Be the intramural director, be the sports information director, or coach another sport. I mean, I, I, so um, when I took the job at the University of New Haven after three years at LIU, um, you know, I had, I had to take another sport. So I took hockey um, because it's related a little bit uh, to soccer. I grew up in New York City. I was a big hockey fan, Ranger fan. I saw my first game 1953 um, in the old garden where you could, uh, with a high school ID card, you can go to the game for 40 cents. So, so, so uh, yeah. Um, and so we went, uh, we went all the time. Uh, back then, the games were like only two hours long. There was no TV, no TV timeout. So seven o'clock game ended at 9.05, the latest. Just all uh, action. Yeah, I was home by 9.30. Uh, so my parents let me go, you know, even on a school night. So, so, um, yeah. So well, I what do you think are the, what do you think are the, um, what are the similarities between the two sports and what are the differences? Maybe even more important because I, I, I lived in Minnesota for a while. Everybody loved hockey up there. It was always on at my friend's house. I could never like really get it. It's really hard. It's really hard. Well, you can't follow the puck half the time. Uh, you have to, you know, if you're watching on TV, you got to really feel the body language of the players to you know to know what's happening but what was really important for me at the time was the refereeing system so back then it was one referee and two linesmen uh, and you and and there was only a six team league so they only had three referees so the linesmen were local they were the same two guys that you know lived down the block so you got you got to know the refereeing style of the referees and it was the same for soccer one referee and two linesmen. So I, I, I embraced this uh, <clears throat> feel, feel for the game, so to speak. And, and um, you know, the body language of the referees and how they control the game and how they dealt with the players. So when indoor soccer started, major indoor soccer league, uh, I was asked by the same Walter Chiswitz, would I take over or become the first uh, referee in chief uh, for the MISL, because I knew it was going to be now a soccer game played in a hockey rink and with some of the same rules, time penalties and, 
mm-hmm. three line passes and and one referee and da da da. So uh, I mean that was a great fun fun time for me. I I was uh, I did that for five years, and I refereed the first indoor game, first MISL game. Pete Rose kicked out the first ball. Um, I refereed uh, first couple All Star games, and one of them was in Madison Square Garden, which being this hockey fan growing up, that was, you know, a major thrill for me to referee in Madison Square Garden. And then I had to uh, pretty much organize a referee program because because the indoor league was fighting the outdoor league and the outdoor league was preventing their referees from refereeing indoors. So I had, we actually started the first full-time referee program in America by hiring six referees to referee all of the indoor games in the MISL. Huh. And that, that program, organizing that program and servicing it is actually what led to my being hired by MLS. Okay, because MLS, when it started, U.S. soccer was not ready to uh, facilitate a referee program for that level of play, and they needed someone to organize it after one year it was it was really chaotic 202 different officials refereed in the first year of MLS so, so i mean not all in the middle obviously but because you had ARs and fourth official but you know you had, you know you got to cut down the numbers to get consistency right so so uh i got hired in year 2 and for the next 15 years i was the um referee guy um, who was dealing with U.S. soccer, who owned the referee program, and uh, the Canadian Soccer League when we you know, finally had teams in, in Toronto and later on Vancouver. Yeah. But, but back, to the, back to hockey and soccer real quick, what are the crucial differences between the sports? Like in, in how you score goals, essentially, is what I'm thinking. Is it the same same concept, basically? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly the offside is completely different because right. you, you know you post up in front of the goalkeeper, and you try to and you try to screen him. The less he sees with the puck, the better, the better chance you get. But but in essence, offside is also the same because the blue line is you can relate that to the second to last defender. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it as it moves, except the blue line in hockey is stationary, and in hockey it moves. It, it, it in soccer it moves you know up and down with the second to last defender. Obviously substitutions are different, um, you know. But you know, tracking back and man marking and um, all of those things. Uh, there's there's a lot of similarities. It's it's uh, you know, and if you if you look at what uh, some of the hockey players are doing as a warm up now in the in the hallways prior to them putting on their skates they're all kicking soccer balls right and juggling soccer balls so it's uh it was it was fun i only did hockey for 3 years at new haven then uh i, I got a sabbatical leave to study for my phd and and uh when i came back the athletic director um Got into you know he he was asked to leave and and then I became acting athletic director and then later athletic director so I never picked up hockey again uh, and I I stayed with soccer for a while 
um, and then gave that up uh, to go to the indoor league. And then came back to the university <laughs> to start the women's program in the 90s and then left that to go to MLS. Most of the work you just described was with um, professional, you know, referees, pr- refereeing professional games. But I do wonder what your, you know, what is your sense of the referee shortage at the grassroots level in America and um, how to solve that? Maybe your description of the problem and your description of the solution. I'll tell you, I, I coach my kids' uh, rec soccer teams here in North Georgia. And just this last season, we couldn't even get, there just wasn't any, there weren't any refs available. And it doesn't matter that much. It's pretty low intensity, but um, it helps the kids feel like they're part of something when there's like a real ref there, you know, calling the game. It makes a big difference, I think, in how they feel about the game. And we can't get a ref. So I wonder what what you think is going on. And you would think that with the professionalism professionalization of refereeing now in America. I mean, there are careers to be had. Um, and there's, you know, in, in Major League Soccer, there are full-time referees and, and, the, and they have a union. And even in the second division and third division, they're unionized now and they're getting decent pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would think that that you know that young referees would be motivated that you would be that we should have no problem um finding referees but you got to remember two things the the amount of games now is just incredible i mean there's soccer all over the country now um back then there was no such thing as a soccer facility uh and i'm not talking you know like the first soccer specific stadium, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking places with 20 soccer fields where, you know, they have these tournaments and where you come together and, and you see in a given day, they probably need 30, 40 referees just to, you know, to fill those games and, and referees are doing two, three games a day. Uh, you, you would think that there would be, you know, this desire to become a referee now that, now that at the top level, referees are being glamorized um, so, so, and getting paid. But you know, and I know you asked the question, so you would ask me to talk about the abuse that referees are getting at the youth level and otherwise. I mean, even, does the name Essie Bahamas mean anything to you? Essie was a, one of our FIFA referees who was a World Cup referee, not the one that just did the final. We're going back to the one that had the shirt pull in the Brazil-Norway uh, game where he got criticized for three days for being the worst referee at the World Cup. Oh, okay. Until they found the video of, you know, the shirt being pulled back and then he became a hero. Well, Essie later went on to become uh, head of referees at U.S. Soccer. He's a good friend of mine and, and uh, has a daughter who at 14, 15 was refereeing, right? Essie Bahamas' daughter, and she goes to her dad and says, I can't do this anymore. I mean, it's just, you know, the names you're being called, the, 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 the stuff you're having to deal with on the sidelines. She, you know, she referees volleyball now. So, so, I mean, lots of kids try it, 
and don't stay with it. And, and, you know, I mean, it's <clears throat> not that kids deliver papers anymore, newspapers anymore. I don't think they do that, but it, that even 15 years ago, it was so much a better job than delivering newspapers, right? You could, so like I said, do three games a day, probably even if it was $15 a game at that level for 70 minute game, whatever. So with $45 or more, 60, it was a great Saturday, right? I cleaned a bingo hole every Saturday for five dollars. So, 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 uh, yeah. But the kids can take it, and 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 I mean, there are some clubs where they have don't allow parents to come to the games on specific weekends. Uh, but you can't ask the referee to throw out a parent. It becomes it becomes a hostile situation, um, and it's you know things are a little bit nuts. All right, right now around all youth sports, really. Yeah, you can't you can't get into confrontation with people. You can, you know, it's just you don't know where it's going to go. So, so uh, yeah, so the kids are quitting. They join. They're learning the rules. They buy a uniform. They last a couple of years. They quit. Huh. Cultural uh, renaissance, I guess, is what we need. Or something. <clears throat> well, we need number one. We need the parents and the players to know the rules, which is a starting point, I would think. Number two, get a greater understanding. Have a referee make it mandatory for the parents to attend the referee meeting prior to the t- season, where the referees explain how there are there are basically three, maybe four decisions in a game that are going to affect the outcome. Now, forgetting game control, which is also an important part, but a referee has to decide penalty kick or no penalty kick, mm-hmm. yellow card or red card or no card, right? Uh, offside or not offside. All of these are match critical that can determine the outcome of a game because the game is a one goal game. It's, 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 so you make a call regardless of which call, which side of the call. You're either given the penalty or you're not. You can make a mistake either way. It should have been a penalty that you don't give, or it's, you know, or it's wasn't a penalty that you give. Um, so, and and video review hasn't helped because what video review has done has shown that the referees are human and that they make mistakes even at the highest level. So when 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 we're showing top level referees get a penalty kick decision wrong that someone in a video booth has to look at basically 16 different angles to get a different angle that the referee gets in order to say to the referee, maybe you would come to the screen and take a look at this other angle and you might change your mind. So all of that just puts doubt in the side, in the ability of the, it puts doubt in the ability of the referee who doesn't have video review. Yeah. So, so, uh, because, because it's all about angles. Uh, what looks like a clean play from one side, from one camera is a foul looking at it from another camera. And well, it seems like- behind, Sorry, the camera behind the goal is the best camera, especially for things in the penalty area. Right. Use, but, but the referee doesn't have that view. Right. So, you remember, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago in UEFA, they had a referee on the goal line 
Do you remember that? I don't remember that. No. Oh yeah. So uh, Michelle Platini, who was still a FIFA vice president or whatever, that was his. That was his baby. So he he had referees, you know, normal three referees, fourth official, a referee on each goal line. And that referee had a headset, no flag. He had a headset, but he would advise the referee on that angle, which was from behind the goal, which was often the key angle to get it right. right. But Platini got into trouble with FIFA. And when he, and when he got um, out, put out, they threw out his his uh, uh, baby, that was his baby. He threw the uh, baby out with the bathwater, I guess. That was his baby, the referees on the goal line. Huh. Well, a, a few more questions about, just about the growth of soccer in America before we get to some rules questions. Um, in your opinion, who did the most to advance soccer in this country before 1990? Who are, who are maybe three people who come to mind? Uh, number one, Detmar Kramer, uh, without a doubt. So after the World Cup in 1970, which was in Mexico, Kramer, who was a FIFA instructor, was sent to America to run three coaching schools. Uh, they were run all three of them in consecutive weeks. They were one week long at the Moses Brown School in Providence, sponsored by Southern New York State Soccer Association. I went to the first one, the first week, along with 16 other guys. We thought we knew something about soccer. We didn't know anything about soccer, okay? Um, there were very few books to read at that time. You, there was virtually no soccer on TV. Um, the... World Cup of 1970 was shown on closed circuit TV in theaters like Madison Square Garden, giant screen theaters. Um, so it was, it was basically a foreign sport. So, so he, first of all, came and told, talked to us like the physical dimension, the tactical dimension, the technical dimension and the psychological dimension, four dimensions of soccer. We're like, we never even heard of this and broke it down to make it such a simple game. After week one, other people were hearing about what our opinion was. They were calling us on the pay phone in the dorm. Uh, what was it? Should I sign up for week two? So like in week two, Walter Chiswick signs up, Al Miller signs up, blah, blah, blah. Kramer asked me to come back for week two and three to do the goalkeeping because that was my assignment because you had to do an on-field assignment to pass the course. Huh. So, so who brought Kramer over? Like whose idea was it to have? Uh, FIFA. Okay. He not only went to us, he, he went to Japan. He went to all, there were several FIFA coaches that went to so-called undeveloped soccer countries. Huh. Okay. So then there was week three. So I think in the first three weeks, maybe 50 coaches went through that program, okay? Kramer actually was offered the job, director of coaching for the U.S., a national team coach, and he turned it down when Bayern Munich, Beckenbauer asked him to, to come to Bayern Munich to be their coach, okay? So now 
Kramer has to appoint someone to follow up and do the coaching schools in his absence, year two, year three, year four. So he appoints the second most important person, Walter Chisowitz, all right, who was one of the first three guys to get what was called the A license back then. There was the A, the B, the C. You went When you went to this school, you, it was not like you went to an A license school like it is now. You, you went to this and you were given the A, the B, or the C, depending upon how you did. Okay, so like oh, very few got A. I I received the B the first time, mostly because as a goalkeeper I didn't have on field playing. You know, like today goalkeepers are players. Right. In fact, now they call this is a new one, the goal player. No more goalkeeper, the goal player, right? So, but I mean, I didn't have a left foot. I didn't have you know could hardly juggle. Da da da. And and one of Kramer's things was is a picture's worth a thousand words. And if the coach can't show what, how to do something, then he can't be the coach. There was no internet. There were no video. There was no, you know, back then. So the coach had to be this demonstrator. So later on, I got an A uh, in 1974 when I went back to take the course a second time. And then I became the goalkeeper coach, coach for all of those coaching schools which then led to the development of the camp, which we talked about. And, and then later my, my appointment to the national team as the goalkeeper coach. So Detmark Kramer, Walter Chiswitz, third, Werner Fricker. Werner Fricker was the president. He was vice president of U.S. soccer at a time where we were nowhere, okay? And we were broke. Um, and so he becomes president and he determines he's going to do something about it. So he puts up his personal line of credit from his construction company and his other business that he had in Philadelphia. And we win the 1994 World Cup. But, you know, based on, on that application, huh. which, you know, which changes soccer in America. Um leads to the development of MLS, you know? I mean, you you know, you can, there, there, there are certainly others, Bob Gensler, the coach of that 90 team, um, you know? So just so I'm, I understand, he put money up from his construction business for what purpose exactly? Letter of credit for the application to host 1994 World Cup. Okay, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then when we get the World Cup, there was always this rumor that if we didn't qualify in 90, they would take it away. So there was this pressure of winning that game in Trinidad was huge um, because no team uh, up until that time, no team had ever been, no country had ever been awarded a World Cup that didn't qualify the year, the World Cup before. Like, okay, so... This time we had Qatar, right? Got the World Cup, but they never qualified before. Right. So it was going to be, there was a chance they were going to be taken, it was going to be taken away. And then when we finally got it, then, then FIFA began to realize that we were still unprepared as a nation. And they, they, um, 
they actually put up someone else to run for president of U.S. soccer and and, and uh, Alan Rothenberg, who had experience running the Olympics here in America, where soccer was a big, was the number one attended sport a couple of years before. Uh, and then he became president of U.S. soccer. And then we had the most successful uh, 1994 World Cup was in terms of attendance, was the most successful World Cup ever back even then. And maybe even now. I mean, I don't I think know. it might still be. Yeah, might still be. Yeah. That's great. That's a, thank you for that thorough yeah, answer. Short, shortly after, both Werner Fricke and Walter Jesuits passed away. Yeah, yeah. So, where are we in our development as a soccer nation, in your opinion? You know. Um, okay. So, what's the barometer? Uh, okay. So, what what's the barometer? Is national team barometer uh, performance the barometer? So, so let's look at that barometer. So, so men's national team. Right. Um, so it's a game of inches, soccer, right? So we get out of the group and we face Holland, Netherlands. So you recall Pulisic's goal or goal attempt? Like in the 16th minute, I think it was that. Yeah, very early. Very early that you know he get he's onside because there's a guy at the top of the screen. So does he? He misses that by an inch, right? And so then it becomes a different game if we score. Okay, go to the final. Three minutes to go in the second added time period, extra time period. The kick save made by the Argentine. Goalkeeper, matter inches, okay? Guy puts it a little bit higher, he's not going to save. It's going to go off of a, even if he gets his hand to it, it's going to bend his arm backwards and go into the goal. Then France scores that goal, doesn't even go to penalties. France is the national champion. Messi, (laughs) right? So it's a matter of inches. Um, I mean, we have players now. All of, we can field a national team of players playing in Europe at high levels. Back in 90, the only players that we had that were playing at high levels European soccer were goalkeepers. You know, later in the night, Friedel, Casey Keller, Friedel, you know. I mean, nobody was playing for Ray. Oh, Harks played a little bit. Uh, but, you know, so... Our players are better. Uh, we have more players. Back in '90, we had maybe eight players, and 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 the rest were reserves. That you you know, if if you put them into the game, the the, you, the, the level of play would go be lowered. But you, maybe they would bring something positive where you could change the game. Today, we got what well, we have forty players, right, or more. I mean, right. We left players home that could have made a contribution. So, but you don't know, right? And also, I mean, players get hurt and whatever. Um, on the women's side, we were the number one country in the world, uh, still ranked number one, um, but the rest of the world is catching up. 
Uh, soccer is a game where you have to have freedom. You know, if every player is a quarterback. You get the ball, you have to make a decision. You have to make decisions before you get the ball. Yeah. So it was the countries that had open societies where women were allowed to make decisions um, and weren't um, held captive or in clandestine environments. Those are the countries that led in early women's soccer, but now women are more free around the rest of the world and more countries are, are playing good women's soccer. So in terms of participation, if you want to use that barometer, I talked about the number of fields and soccer facilities and MLS. I mean, how many teams, cities want MLS? And now you got you got lower division teams in almost almost every city. Um, yeah. And it, and we're not talking, you know, one of the one of the things you wrote to me earlier when we first started to talk about this was. My experiences in the so-called Cosmopolitan League in New York City. Well, when I played in that league for the New York Ukrainians, it wasn't even the Cosmopolitan League. It was the German-American Soccer League before it was named the Cosmos. When the Cosmos became famous, Cosmos became famous, they adopted that name, Cosmopolitan League. So well, back then, the German-American League was the number, that and the American League was the top league on the East Coast. But every team was an ethnically a team. So you had the Greek Americans, you had Inter Juliana, New York Hungarians, uh, Schwaben, um, pretty much every national, nationality. And it was, you know, only 10, 12, 15 years after World War II. So there were, was, there were some hostilities. I bet. You know, between the sidelines. Uh, yeah. But mostly an immigrant league, like, you know, right? It was an immigrant yeah. league, yeah, yeah, basically. I was one of the few, to, I mean, I, I don't know if this is a bragging point, but I was one of the few American-born, I'm third-generation American, to, to crack that league. Hmm. So, 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 and I only did so because I met some Ukrainian kids in high school that took me to their club, the New York Ukrainians, which was in East Village, New York, and that club... <clears throat> later became a very big club, won the Open Cup. I was the backup goalkeeper for that club in the Open Cup. But but uh, that's where I really learned my soccer um, because of, and I met Walter Chiswitz there and 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 uh, I really you know because I would I would be I would go behind the goal. You know, back then the juniors played at eleven, the reserves played at one, the first team played at two. So all on the same field. So, so I would play the junior game then go behind the goal of the reserve game and go behind the goal of the first and, and then emulate what I, you know, if a goalkeeper made a mistake, I, I made sure I didn't make that same mistake when I was a player. So, so uh, it was fabulous. And, you know, there would be 1500, 2000 play, uh, people a game spectators on Fields with no grass. Uh, some some fields were made of crushed cinder. Uh, you know, I mean, it was, and they were used. Um, I could send you pictures. They were used um, so often that there were never grass could never grow. Right. So, so so even if they planted it, 
and there was no artificial turf then, and there was no sod like we know it today. So, so yeah, it was, it was, you came home <laughs> and, and, you know, you would stick to your sheets at night yeah. from where the raspberries from your slide tackles and saves that you, that you, that you had to make, but it was, it was tough. I wonder when we'll get to the point where like, you know, I was, I don't know if you watch football, but NFL, well, or college football, like last night, I watch, I watch NFL. Unfortunately, I, I'm a New York Jets fan. And I went, <laughs> I followed the Jets when they were the Titans, which might've been before you were the born. Well, I, I only bring it up because last night, um, you know, Georgia demolished TCU, but one of a kid from Chatsworth, Georgia, which is a small town, not too far from where I live, uh, scored three touchdowns. Name was Lad McConkey. And, um, you know, you look, you go back and look at some of the great American athletes. They came from, they come from, a lot of them come from small towns or small cities, you know, in the heart of the country. Michael Jordan's from Wilmington, uh, Mickey Mantle's from like the hills of Eastern Oklahoma. And um, I still don't know that soccer has really, it doesn't really have roots in those kind of places as much as it does in like the big cities. I guess I just wonder, you know, how long it'll take for that to, for that to happen. You know, I, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, uh, yesterday I went for a haircut and the person cutting my hair was like, telling me about the final, the World Cup final that he watched. And he, I think it was the first game he ever watched, you know. And, and, Did he know uh, who you are? No, I, I, I eventually told him not who I was, but I told him that I was in Qatar, and, but I didn't tell him who I was. Um, <clears throat> but that's how the conversation actually got started. And, but, and you know, and then, he, and then he said, I think the high school plays. Uh, soccer, he said, and you know, the high school down here is called Wando, because the river is Wando, and they're they've been playing soccer for thirty years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they're good. So, so it's yeah, you're right. Anyway, it you know it doesn't get the publicity in the newspapers and um, TV. Aside from really important games, TV TV is uh, um, ratings are not. Not that strong, um, and I mean, while we were doing the final, if you remember, when it went into the extra time, it had the possibility of cutting into Sunday NFL at one o'clock Eastern. Do you re do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And it was it was like, what's going to happen? Are they going to cut away? Are they going to cut away from the from the World Cup, you know, to go to the opening kickoff of uh, one o'clock. I'm glad they they didn't have they did they definitely didn't. But did they did they even have to make a choice? They I can't. did not have to make the choice. No. Okay. But if it would have gone to the 11, 12 rounds of penalties, it might have. Ah. Uh. If you remember, they immediately switched from Big Fox, what we call Big Fox, to FS1. Right. For the for the award ceremony. I do remember that. Yeah. We have a bunch of questions submitted from people uh, who subscribe to our podcast on Patreon, and uh, I'll just put in a plug. If you're um, if you're interested, check us out on Patreon. You get exclusive episodes. You can become a member of the Discord. First question comes from uh, Nate from Oregon, and he asks, 
what does your battle station look like? My battle station? Your battle station that you, that you work from, you know, how many, how many monitors do you have? Okay. So I do a lot of stuff from home. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they've given me what's called uh, a home cam. Um, and, and so I have this, but can you see me? I can see you. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to move the thing. So behind me is the big box. You see it? Yep. Big, and then that little round thing on top is the home cam. Okay. You just have it covered with a piece of plastic right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It kind of protects the lens. And then see a little higher is one of the sets of lights. Got it. Okay. And then behind me, the other way, is the big screen that's actually the backdrop. So that lights up, you know, that says Fox, whatever. And then in the chair I'm sitting in is uh, a whole uh, sound apparatus thing with the headset, that just like the one you're wearing okay. that I put on. So when I'm watching a game at home, I watch it on the little monitor that's there. Can you see it? Yep. Or underneath the camera. And then I have a TV there. Okay. The problem is the TV, because it comes over uh, direct TV, is 17 seconds later. Yeah. Okay. So it's a real handicap uh, because I'm seeing what you see. Okay. Uh, on both monitors? No. Well, okay. yes, on both. Okay. So on the monitor, I'm seeing the TV production. Okay. And then I'm seeing on my TV, I'm seeing the TV production, but 17 seconds later. Okay. Okay. But so I'm seeing the same replays, okay, that are provided to the viewer often after I'm asked to give an opinion or, or I'm asked to give an opinion before seeing a replay sometimes. I know that because I heard from um, um, our friends that I was doing a Philadelphia game and I know that I really messed up on an offside decision. The problem was that I was still reviewing the penalty kick decision that happened a minute before. Uh -huh. Okay. And, did, and I, what I should have said is to JP Della Camera when he called me, I should have said, JP, I'm sorry. I don't have a clear look at this. You know, rather Because I than, feel like I've heard you say that before. I don't have okay. a clear look at this. Okay, so there is a machine. There is a machine called an EVS. And they actually call it Elvis, the machine, where you can make your own replays. Okay? So even at the World Cup in Qatar, I didn't have that machine the first 10 games. Okay, finally they, they set it up for me and Mark Clattenburg. So we could, we could immediately go back, see the point of contact or see the offside or to, and comment with some sense of intelligence, um, you know, as to what happened. So you really need to have that machine to, to do the job that you're being asked to do. You know, yesterday I was talking with Brian Hall, um, who is the former head of referees in CONCACAF. And he said, were you, were you in Qatar or were you at home? I said, no, I was in Qatar for five weeks, da-da-da. And then I explained to him how it was done. And he said, holy smokes, how do you do that? So anyway, it's, 
if you remember the first game of the World Cup, there was an incident in four minutes. Okay, the first, the first Ecuador off- Qatar, right? Yeah, the first offside decision they disallowed. Uh, who was the game? Ecuador. Yeah, so, it was Ecuador. Yeah, Ecuador scored a goal in four minutes, and then the referee was told, "Hold on, hold on." We're looking at this, but they didn't tell. I didn't know what they were looking at. Okay, one were they looking for a foul? Okay, which would you know if there's a foul in the attacking phase, you can disallow the goal. And there were two offside situations there. An obvious one where the goalkeeper had come out and a player was behind the goalkeeper, and and then a third one where, where a second offside, third thing to look at, which which could not be seen with the naked eye. It was a perfect opportunity for me to say, and I was thoroughly rehearsing my mind, they're using semi-automated, semi-automatic offside technology, which has 12 additional cameras, which measures 29 points on every player's body at 50 images a second, and they may be able to pick up an offside on this play, which I can't see. If I would have said that, it would have been golden, okay? But I didn't, all right? Because I kind of got caught by surprise in the four minutes. I didn't have the replay machine. And I started to talk about an offside decision, which was not the offside decision they were looking at. Uh-huh. Okay? But after, when we got the machine, me and Mark Clattenburg, uh, then we were, you know, much better. So... Mark, I mean, Mark, it seems hard. Like live TV is hard enough, but to to have to deal with all that and be called on, and you have to, you know, you only get called on when it's a very controversial moment, you know. Yeah. And it's not like NFL, where you know, where it's stop action, so there's nothing going on while we're re- we're asking to review this play. Right. And you understand what I'm saying? There's 30 seconds between plays. So you could you could by that time I would have been able to go to my TV, which is 17 seconds, and 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 replay that on the TV a little bit and see something. But so it is what it is. I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you how it is. No, it's it's interesting to hear about how it how it really is. How do you prepare for a game? Like, what's your what what prep do you need to do to to be ready? Well, first of all, uh, I study the referees. Okay, right here. Are the referees who have just been assigned yesterday to Women's World Cup? Okay. Okay. So I will start doing my homework, and I don't even know if I'm working Women's World Cup yet. But I will do bios on every one of these referees, which which games they have had, how they got there, and I give that information to the broadcasters, so that when they say, "Oh, the referee's 48 years old," he's he or she's been FIFA since 2017. The last time they refereed Honduras was in da-da-da. This was the score. That's all information that I prepare. Obviously, you have to be on time with uh, the laws of the game and all of their interpretations. So I attend classes. Saturday was a U.S. soccer uh, seminar for four hours for uh, all the referee coaches, you know, the ones that go to the tournaments and and, and evaluate the referees. So I attend those. When MLS starts, um, their head of VAR, his name is Greg Barkey. He runs like every two weeks a seminar on all the VAR decisions. 
Okay, I attend those. I come mm -hmm. over on Zoom, um, and I so you 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 know, and I have. Uh, hold on. I have cheat sheets. Okay, so when my office is set up, I don't have a game coming up in quite some time. When my office is set up, I actually brought these to Guitar. Uh, here's my uh, references for dog so, denial of obvious, you know, because you got to use the right choice of words. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. So offside, uh, you name it, I got it. Uh, handling, uh, right? So, and these are posted. What's the difference between careless, reckless, and excessive force? I've got these posted all over so that I have an immediate reference point without having to look at the law book. Just, be, just because people aren't going to be able to see this, you're holding up uh, hand, like sheets with handwritten uh, notes Magic on them. marker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> big, big sheets. Yeah. And I got, you know, you name it, I got it. Uh, uh, any, oh, I've used this one, actually quoted this one a couple times. Any player who lunges at an opponent in challenging for the ball from the front, the side, or behind, using one or both legs with excessive force or endangering the safety of the opponent is guilty of serious foul play. It's good when you can quote the entire rule. Right. <laughs> well, that, that brings me to a question from um, uh, J.H. in Denver. Seriously, he says, what is a handball? You want so this is two thousand and uh, what? What's twenty three? Yeah, it's twenty three now. Yeah, so they've changed. They've changed the handball law, you know, umpteen times already. Uh, they've taken out the word deliberate because that 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 word that used to be an important word when a player deliberately, you know, and now the referee had to decide, almost read the player's mind: was it deliberate or not? Uh, so they've taken that out, and they pretty much said now if the if the player makes himself or herself unnaturally bigger, okay, through through the position of his hand or arm, and that position is not related to the performance of that skill, okay, the player takes a risk of being hit by the ball. And being penalized, right? So if you, now that means that means uh, deliberate is totally gone because you're being hit by the ball, even right? Okay, and you're not deliberately having your hand out there. It might be just a, it might be just a, uh, a, nat, a you know, a reaction. So the referee has to decide: is this normal for if a person's doing this play? Is you know, is he, is he or she making themselves bigger? unnaturally yeah it's uh, lucky for raheem sterling he's not a defender because his his arms are always out like this anyway well this is important because attacking handballs are now different than defensive handballs because if an attacker completely accidentally even being hit by the ball scores a goal directly or immediately thereafter the goal must be disallowed. So even, even in a handball that you would not call on a defender, huh. okay, if the attacker 
is guilty of the same handling violation and the ball is scored either directly by that handle or immediately thereafter by that same player, the goal must be disallowed. So, I mean, so that's even a rule change, right? So that handballs are different depending upon if what penalty area you're in. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I'm I'm glad to know that. It does kind of make sense, but mm-hmm. Austin B in Knoxville, Tennessee asks, what's the one rule you would change if you could and why? That's easy. So so because I've been asked that before multiple times. Um and that's the substitution for potential concussion. Okay, so two players hit heads, right? One player goes down, he's holding his head. I mean, I've asked doctors about this. Doctors have told me that a real good concussion protocol examination could take six to eight minutes, right? We're putting players back in the game after two minutes, one minute even, some of them not even being taken out of the game. So the rule change I would make would be that there's, yes, they, FIFA now has concussion substitute that if a player is concussed, you can use the concussion substitute and it not be counted as one of the five. But the, what the rule should be that a player could substitute for a player who's being examined for concussion protocol. That's six to eight or even 10 minutes, as long as it takes. And if the doctor says the player's okay to go back in, then that player goes back in, the substitute for that player comes off, and it doesn't count as a sub. Okay. They do it now in the youth a little bit, but we're far from doing it. Um, in, 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 in real senior soccer. And, you know, part of it is a fear that it would be used in gamesmanship. Right. You know, and, and but, you, you know, you're playing with people's lives in this thing, really. Yeah, no doubt. Matt in New Jersey, he calls it the Great Garden State, which I, I know that's its nickname. What rule in soccer is the hardest to explain or get across to an audience that you know might not watch the game and are only tuning in for the World Cup and why? All right. The hardest thing right now is in an offside situation where the defender actually makes contact with the ball and the ball goes to the attacker. Now the referee has to decide, did the defender make a deliberate play? Or is it a deflection? Hmm. If the defender makes a deliberate play, that puts the player on side. But if it's a deflection, the, the player is deemed to be offside or gaining an advantage from being in an offside position, has to be flagged and whistled. So they, even after the new rule book came out, this rule book, which comes out in July, three July, they had to write an addendum called Circular 26 to further explain the difference between deliberate play and deflection. And I, you know, part of, <laughs> part of what I do is for the, 
often write summaries of referee decisions for the broadcasters. So I believe that I can take a little bit of credit for the current set of broadcasters that do our games really understanding the laws of the game a lot more than they did 10 years ago. Um, because, uh, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, I don't even think I could cite specific examples, but the, you know, the fact that they do have, I think that probably it exists in NFL too. I think the fact that there's a so-called rules analyst on the broadcast um, helps the broadcasters, the play-by-play and color, better understand the game, become better prepared. And over time, as these explanations generate themselves, I've been doing it 10 years now, they, they, they get it. Yeah. So, 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 so they don't make, you know, really bad errors, um, you know. Um, and sometimes I don't get to come on, you know, but I will email or even at halftime ask the producer to contact, you know, put me in touch with play-by-play and say, well, you know, this is what really, you know, and be careful of this because this is what they were looking for. So you're not, you're not in their ear uh, throughout the game or not able to contact no, them throughout the no, game. The okay. producer, uh, I have a box uh, where the producer can talk to me. I have to hit a button to speak back to the producer. And then the producer will open my mic to the, to the play-by-play and color. So some, you know, it's a matter of uh, style. Some, some play-by-play color people will go to me sooner or more often, uh, and others got it, you know, and they think they got it. They don't necessarily need me to explain it because they've explained it themselves. Okay. Uh, Denson Jenkins in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, asks, what can rulemakers and referees do to stop simulation? and extreme dissent that often goes unpunished. Uh, maybe a, a penalty, po- penalty box, a sin bin, or just be more harsh on yellows and reds? What do you think? Good question. Uh, prior to the World Cup, there was a uh, referee seminar for the media. And so we went to a meeting that was conducted by Colina, the head referee, and others. So they told us the three main uh, topics or focal points, initiatives for the World Cup. One was the protection of players. And they showed us a bunch of videos, the same videos they showed each team and the same videos that the referees were used in their learning and practice. This World Cup was most interesting. We did not see a single red card for serious foul play except the one play by the goalkeeper from Wales, I believe, who came out of the area, right, and and took down the guy. And that had to go to VAR before it was determined that it wasn't, shouldn't have been yellow. Referee first showed yellow, VAR, then this showed red. But we didn't get a straight red to a field player for the entire World Cup for a tackle such as the one I described to you, studs up, lunging two feet, one foot from the side. From So they did a very good job eliminating that. Second point was respect for the game, respect for the referees. Simulation is considered an act 
of disrespect to the game. So they showed they showed a bunch of simulation and that it would be penalized. At the same time, they handcuffed the referees by telling them, you know, a game 11 against 10, a game uh, 10 against 10, 10 against 9 is really not what soccer wants. You know, you have to work hard to manage situations and not give unnecessary yellow cards that could potentially wind up where you have to give a player a second yellow and send him off. Right. So, so you saw simulation addressed without yellow cards. And you saw very few simulations got yellow cards, one or two, three, maybe at the World Cup. But the war requires that simulation is addressed by yellow cards. Third, this marbing of the referee, uh, it's called, uh, I don't know, it's, it's escaping me right now, but I, I'll think of it. But anyway, mobbing of the referee to dispute a call or yeah. try, to, try to work, the, try to mass confrontation, it's called. Oh, mass, yeah, yeah. Okay, mass confrontation. So, so it's terrible. Okay, and it's, we talked about the kids that get abused on the sidelines by the parents and all. But, you know, as you get up to this higher level of game, you got this mass confrontation issue where, where uh, you know you could give, and some of them yellow, 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 yellow. You know, five, six, seven yellows. Right? Even they touch the referee, uh, but the same handcuffing of the referee by the match authorities. You know, they want you to handle it through personality, through body language, through facial expressions. Um, and so you don't see, you don't see at the World Cup, yellow cards given for it, and the yellow and the and the World Cup is the barometer. So it trickles down into every game, you know, uh, yeah. uh, to senior league, you know. But like in England, I believe in the Premiership, they can the disciplinary committee can find teams for not controlling their players in those situations. But fining teams is not the same. You don't know who pays the fine. You know what I mean? So, so even if you find the player, you still don't know, you know that he could write the personal check and then under the table they can reimburse him. So you really don't know who's paying the fine. The only way to manage it is for the player to be sent off. We had it in the early... MLS dissent was rampant. The referees, as I told you earlier, really weren't ready to do those games because, I mean, we in early MLS, we had big-time players, Valderrama, uh, mm. Donna Doni, uh, you know, Marco Echeverri, Jaime um, Moreno, uh, each team. Had, and the referees had not <laughs> any experience refereeing, you know, so they weren't ready. It wasn't their fault. Yeah, you said you, there were 200 different referees. 200 person, yeah, at the yeah. various different, 202. It really wasn't their fault. So it took time to get them ready, and we had to 
make the group smaller and pick the ones that we thought we could do it. We had so many meetings with referees and players in the same room, right? So, you know, to work on that issue. But at the top of the game, the World Cup, it's still an issue. Because mm-hmm. they don't they don't want they don't want to see the World Cup played ten against nine. They want the good players to play. Um <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's what I just said. They want the good players to play. Look at the penalty kicks that Messi. Look at the penalty kick that Messi got, that Lewandowski got, that Ronaldo got. Three of the softest penalty kicks, right? That but Uruguay didn't get. They had opportunity for two penalty kicks. The the referee even went to VAR. VAR was recommending penalty kick and didn't give it. And as a result, it got out. And Qatar had a hundred percent penalty in their game, their second game, I think. And while the score was still close, their forward stopped with the ball like near the six and got run over by the defender. Hundred percent penalty, and the referee didn't give it. So I mean, it's that was for me the main inconsistency was on penalties, and still, you know, not well, critical decision. Jorge Castillo in the Bay Area wanted to know why you think so few yellow cards were given for um, simulation. And I guess that explains it is they didn't want, um, they wanted the good players to play. They didn't want, the refs were handcuffed. I think a simulation is a tricky one because, you know, it's, it's got to, by the laws of the game, it's got to be no foul and you pretend that there was a foul, right? Well, well, there's simulation and there's embellishment of contact. Okay. Okay, so, so, you know, if there's contact, it's not simulation. But when they embellish contract, the contact, and you as a referee say, hey, I'm not giving you that, you know? You, you're making a meal out of a little bit of contact. But simulation is where there's no contact whatsoever, and you try to, you try, you're either trying to get a penalty or you're trying to get somebody sent off. It feels like embellishment of contact is so much a part of the game at this point that yes it's it's always going to be with us and it's trickled down into other sports even (laughs) right basketball football even american football even yeah um let's see just a few more questions i don't want to take your whole day here um whatever don't worry patrick in new jersey asks FIFA pulls refs from all over the world. What are the major regional differences in how refs call games? Uh, and which ones, which I guess he's asking, which regions cause the most problems at FIFA events? I don't know if you want to answer that. but No, I can answer that. No. The, 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 the areas of the world where there's the highest level of soccer develops the highest level of referees. So in UEFA and South America, You've got referees who can handle those games. Um, and so typically, you'll, and when the referees are picked for the World Cup, you'll get four or five from UEFA, two or three from South America. However, FIFA is made up of other areas of where they play soccer. And so, for example, and this is no disrespect to the person, but so a referee from the Caribbean doesn't on a weekly basis referee the level of soccer necessary to be successful at the World Cup. 
But there's this political um, need, for want of a better word, to include referees from all over the world. And I mean, they bring them in for seminars like three times. Um, I mean, it's very, very professional now for World Cups. I mean, they've already, as, as I showed you, named the women world referees for the women, Women's World Cup. They'll probably have three major seminars before next July where they're all brought in and trying to standardize what's a handball, what's a penalty kick, what's a... So, so, so that's a simple answer. Uh, you know, African, African soccer is not... UEFA soccer, and there's even levels of UEFA. You know, a referee in Greece, refereeing Sunday in Greece, no disrespect to their level, it's, it's not Germany, or, you know, it's not the premiership. So, so referee from the U.S. have done very well, uh, much to the credit of Brian Hall, who I mentioned, and Essie Bahamas, and Kerry Seitz, the women referee who's actually an American in charge of all women referees for FIFA. So, so, so they've, I mean, we had what six officials at, at uh, Men's World Cup um, from CONCACAF, from you know, from you know, and they did, they did round of 16, and and uh, yeah, so, yeah, and the American guy was uh, the fourth official in the final, right? Yep. You want to know something that I take a little bit of pride in? Yes. So after my 15 years of MLS, then I was asked to work for Pro, the organization that took over officiating for the professional leagues now. And, and, and Ishmael Elfath, was, I was his coach mentor hmm. in the first two or three years of he worked MLS. So I was with him in his first game in Montreal. Uh, which was in the Olympic Stadium, which is a tough place to work because the field is not centered. It's like Yankee Stadium almost. Oh, but, okay. Okay, where you don't have the, like, you don't even know where you are sometimes. Where you, <laughs> it, it, there are optical illusions. Oh, is that where the Expos used to play? Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think so. So, so you know, really tough. So, so, so he and I, uh, have that little bit of history. And so when he gets, and he's done, he's done the uh, world club championship, FIFA the world club title, and he's done under twenties. So wouldn't surprise me if he, you know, gets in the middle uh, of a really big game in the next world cup. Of course, if us makes it, then he cannot. Because there, I mean, there are some referees that actually root against their country uh, so that they can get a game, but that's yeah. not certainly it's not something he would do. Well, if he did, I, I don't know that anybody could blame him too much. Uh -huh. James Wilson in Alexandria, Virginia asks: Are there are there alternatives to the penalty shootout that you would like to see in future international tournaments? Now, I know you obviously you had plenty of experience with the MLS, uh, the early MLS way of handling penalty shootouts but yeah <clears throat> that's a good question also so you mentioned hockey it's funny we have shootout in hockey that the fans love right to break the tie in overtime the same shootout in soccer the fans hate 
the same this you know the same concept one on one with the goalkeeper do the fans hate it in soccer yeah yeah they hated it they hated it when mls did it yeah they hated it because they said it wasn't real soccer we they said we want to we would rather have a tie than this uh phony thing this shootout i mean i was heavily involved with the shootout i in fact in year 2 bought 10 $10,000 clocks to put on the goal line so that we could actually see the five seconds. You know, it was in, there were, they were uh, down to the hundredth of a second uh, clock to make sure, because otherwise a referee was using his stopwatch to judge whether the player took the, the shot in within the five seconds. Right. Uh, and at the end of the day, when we abandoned the shootout because nobody liked it. The players hated it, first of all, because, and the referees hated it. I'll tell you the two reasons. Referees hated it because they could do a great game for 90 minutes and screw up the shootout. Uh-huh. Okay? I mean, sometimes in the shootout, you have to give a penalty kick. <laughs> okay? Right? Okay? The players heard it, hated it because they got it hurt because it became one-on-one with the goalkeeper. Goalkeeper confrontations you know have most of the time that doesn't stand well for the for the player uh so they hated it so and you saw many of the top players refuse to take the early shootouts so you know there would be like number i did not know that yeah so so then i don't want any part of this right so those two things but you know what happened to the shootout clocks after the abandonment of the shootout what some teams would have the shootout clock at the front of the stadium where you go in with your ticket with a sledgehammer. And for $10, you got to take a whack at it. Wow. That's how much it was hated. I didn't know there was that much animosity about it. Cause like you see it on social media now and people are like, ah, remember the good old days when you used to settle a game this way? Yeah. yeah, No, I I saw even Alexi Lalas sent one out the other day. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. And all that you've done for American soccer. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm I'm fortunate that, you know, I was there when so much was happening. Right? So it's like it's, you know, being in the right place at the right time sort of thing. And so much was happening. I lived in New York. Um so I grew up where soccer was beginning to germinate and stuff was happening. And uh I made a lot of friends and that reminds me. Um, so most of the people who've been in charge of soccer in America ever are from New York or New Jersey, it seems like. <laughs> well, for the longest time, the U.S. soccer headquarters were in the Empire State Building. Did you know that? I actually didn't know that, no. Okay, yeah. So the, the headquarters were in the Empire State Building. Uh, and then they moved to Colorado Springs, where there's the Olympic Training Center was. And then finally, when Hank Steinbrusher became Secretary General, he was from he, he arranged to buy that building in Chicago. Okay. Um, I don't know. That's an inter. I mean, we we joke about it a lot. We've been joking about it a lot on our podcast lately because of because everybody involved in the latest scandal. Is uh is from New Jersey or New York, you know, 
And so it's a joke like, oh, New Jersey's just being New Jersey, you know. Um, but I do wonder, you know, on a serious note, if you think it would be good for American soccer to sort of spread out the authority, you know, have people from California in charge or. Well, I'm sure, uh, you know, I, I don't know that that's not the case to tell you the truth. Uh, I mean, the way U S soccer is divided into the, the adult, which is the amateur game, the youth and the pro. I mean, there's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I've never been on the boards or most of my stuff has been on the field, so to right. speak. Um, uh, so I've never really been involved at that level, but I, I don't know that we're not spread out all over the country with representation. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I guess I don't for sure know either. I just think of the, you know, that the Bruce Arena coaching tree, you know, the ACC schools, they're sort of highly represented in the, um, leadership in the federation. I I feel like well, Bruce, Bruce and Bob Bradley, um, you know, come from the Manny Shellshy, uh school. Manny was one of the people in that first coaching school that I mentioned to you that Debbie Kramer huh. did. Manny was one of the first ones to get an A. Um, and if and if Walter Chiswitz didn't get the position when Debbie Kramer left, then Manny probably would have. Um, or should have, um, and and, and uh, so he, he's he's done a lot. Um, you know, there, he has a lot of followers, and he's done a lot of had good leadership ability, and and uh, some good coaches, and he developed good players, and, and uh, yeah, just so happens he's from New Jersey. But that first coaching school was in Rhode Island. You know where only people from the East coast came to it. Right. Nobody knew what it was going to be. All right. Well, happy birthday. Enjoy the United soccer convention. Yeah. I'm leaving on Wednesday. Um, I have uh, a big responsibility there. I'm kind of in charge of the Walt Chiswitz fund, uh, which is part of the foundation of United soccer coaches. And we uh, are the leading fund where uh, we are able to give scholarships to the convention and uh, coaching school education to people. And this year we're honoring, like I think I told you, the uh, Philadelphia Adams of 73 and, uh, and Ralph Lundy, who was a 46-year college coach. Um, cool. Yeah, and it's, a, it's a big... Uh, it's a big thing, and we do it like one of the last events of the convention. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you.